Welcome to the 243rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Jeffrey Deaver, international best-selling thriller writer and suspense writer. Stay tuned for the interview. Stay tuned for my interview with Jeffrey Deaver. But first, I wanted to play a short audiobook clip from Deaver's latest novel, this audio excerpt is courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio from The Never Game by Jeffrey Deaver, narrated by Kaleo Griffith. He asked the woman to repeat herself. That thing they throw, she said, with the burning rag in it, they throw. Like at riots, a bottle, you see him on TV. Coulter Shaw said, a Molotov cocktail. Yeah, yeah, Carol was saying. I think he had one. Was it burning, the rag part? No, but you know. Carol's voice was raspy, though she wasn't presently a smoker that Shaw had seen or smelled. She was draped with a green dress of limp cloth. Her natural expression seemed to be one of concern, yet this morning it was more troubled than usual. He was over there, she pointed. The Oak View RV Park, one of the scruffier that Shaw had stayed at, was ringed with trees, mostly scrub oak and pine, some dead, all dry, and thick, hard to see, over there. You called the police? A pause. No, if it wasn't a, what again? Molotov cocktail. If he didn't have one, it'd be embarrassing, and I call the cops enough for stuff here. Shaw knew dozens of RV park owners around the country mostly couples, as it's a good gig for middle-aged marrieds. If there's just a single manager, like Carol, it was usually a she, and she was usually a widow. They tend to dial 911 for camp disputes more than their late husbands, men who often went about armed. On the other hand, she continued, fire, here, you know. California was a tinderbox, as anybody who watched the news knew. You think of state parks and suburbs and agricultural fields. Cities, though, weren't immune to nature's conflagrations. Shaw believed that one of the worst brush fires in the history of the state had been in Oakland, very near where they were now standing. Sometimes I kick somebody out. They say they'll come back and get even. She added with astonishment, even when I caught them stealing 40 amps when they paid for 20. Some people, really. He asked, and you want me to... I don't know, Mr. Shaw, just take a look. Could you take a look, please? Shaw squinted through the flora and saw, maybe, motion that wasn't from the breeze. A person walking slowly? And if so, did the pace mean that he was moving tactically? That is, with some mischief in mind. Carol's eyes were on Shaw, regarding him in a particular way. This happened with some frequency. He was a civilian, never said he was anything else, but he had cop fiber. Shaw circled to the front of the park and walked on the cracked and uneven sidewalk, then on the grassy shoulder of the unbusy road in this unbusy corner of the city. Yes, there was a man, in dark jacket, blue jeans, and black stocking cap, some twenty yards ahead. He wore boots that could be helpful on a hike through brush and equally helpful to stomp an opponent. 
And yes, either he was armed with a gas bomb or he was holding a corona and a napkin in the same hand. Early for a beer some places, not in this part of Oakland. Shaw slipped off the shoulder into the foliage to his right and walked more quickly, though with care to stay silent. The needles that had pitched from branch to ground in droves over the past several seasons made stealth easy. Whoever this might be, vengeful lodger or not, he was well past Carol's cabin. So she wasn't at personal risk. But Shaw wasn't giving the guy a pass just yet. This felt wrong. Now the fellow was approaching the part of the RV camp where Shaw's Winnebago was parked, among many other RVs. Shaw had more than a passing interest in Molotov cocktails. Several years ago, he'd been searching for a fugitive on the lam for an oil scam in Oklahoma when somebody pitched a gas bomb through the windshield of his camper. The craft burned to the rims in twenty minutes, personal effects saved in the nick. Shaw still carried a distinct and unpleasant scent memory of the air surrounding the metal carcass. The percentage likelihood that Shaw would be attacked by two Russian-inspired weapons in one lifetime, let alone within several years, had to be pretty small. Shaw put it at 5%. A figure made smaller yet by the fact that he had come to the Oakland-Berkeley area on personal business, not to ruin a fugitive's life. And while Shaw had committed a transgression yesterday, the remedy for that offense would have been a verbal lashing a confrontation with a beefy security guard, or at worst, the police, not a firebomb. Hey, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is New York Times bestselling thriller and suspense novelist Jeffrey Deaver. Deaver has sold 50 million books worldwide, including the bestselling series of novels featuring his protagonist Lincoln Rhyme as well as novels featuring Catherine Dance, an agent with the California Bureau of Investigation. Deaver has also published three collections of short stories. His latest novel, The Never Game, is being published this week. Jeffrey Deaver, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Good to talk to you. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel, The Never Game, yet, how how would you describe it? Sure. Um the Never Game is a new character, a fellow named Coulter Shaw. Now, uh, I'll, I'll preface this by by this by, by this story I'm about to tell. Um, when a producer in Hollywood is looking for a new project to make a, into a movie, he or she wants something that has been wildly successful in the past and yet never seen before. And that's a kind of a joke on Hollywood, of course, but there's some truth to that. When I approach a book, I want something that fits the formula that my readers have come to expect. And that formula is very simple. A book that takes place over a very short period of time, maybe two or three days, like The Never Game does. Um, there are reversals, internal surprises all along the way. Every few chapters, I turn the story on its head. And then there are three big surprise endings. I like surprise endings, plural. So that's that's the Jeffrey Deaver template. But then there has to be something new, something original. And so while I wanted to adhere to that formula, I thought, what what haven't I seen before? And I went back to my uh, my early days enjoying movies, uh, films like Shane, uh, the Alan Ladd Jr. film, where the gunslinger comes to town, uh, the loner private eye, 
uh, not a fellow who doesn't do all the forensics that you know the Lincoln Rhyme does, my character from the Bone Collector, but kind of a more of a people crime solver and somebody who's not a, a cop at all. So Coulter Shaw is somebody who um, uh, follows rewards. He sees in the news a reward has been offered for a missing person or a uh, maybe a, an escaped convict or a criminal that the police cannot capture. And he pursues that. He travels around the country in his Winnebago and shows up in town and uh, tries to solve the crime. Now, he, he's not a mercenary sort of fellow. He does make his living doing this, but sometimes he doesn't even care about the reward. He gives it away to charity. What he cares about is the fact that a reward represents a problem that has not been solved, that the, the police or the individuals who have a missing family member uh, cannot figure out. And uh, he's a restless man. He calls himself a restless man. And so he um, uh, he rolls up his sleeves and tries to solve the crime that no one can. And in the Never Game, uh, that that uh, missing person he's after is a, um, a young woman in Silicon Valley who has been kidnapped, uh, possibly by a man obsessed with video games. Although since I like my twists and turns, as I said, that may, ne may not be what's happening at all. Great. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing The Never Game? Um, well, there were a couple of um, ideas. I guess the first one that occurred to me was um, a few years ago. Now, I'm not a video gamer. I'll, I'll admit that right up front. What, the, the Never Game is filled with a lot of a lot of material about uh, video games that I uh, I researched, and it's talked to experts, and it's uh, you know it's it's all accurate. But what was one of the inspirations for the game was uh, about three or well, maybe three years ago, I was uh, visiting my uh, my family, and my nine year old niece said, "Uncle Jeff, let's play a video game." I said I was game for it, so to speak, but didn't really know. Um, anything about them. So she took my smartphone, loaded the game on, and she had her smartphone. We were connected via Wi-Fi. So it was a game we were going to play together. And she said, are you ready? And I said, yeah, but I don't really know how to play. She said like this. And she took out a sword and stabbed me to death. My avatar, of course, <laughs> in, in, it was like 10 seconds. <clears throat> and I, I didn't frankly think it was all that sporting of her because I never knew the game, uh, never played it before. So, but we laughed about it, and she taught me how to how to play some. But it gave me the idea of well, what if somebody became obsessed with a video game and uh, tried to take the fictional game, the fantasy game, into real life? And that's where the uh, the story came about. Great. Well, in the past, you've described your writing process where you spend multiple months writing and revising the plot and outline of your novel. As you mentioned earlier, your the template of your novels is one that's very well plotted with lots of twists and turns. I was wondering, was it the same for you in writing The Never Game? Yes, I approach all my books and, frankly, short stories the same. I do an outline first, uh, as you mentioned, uh, eight months. Uh, the outline for The Never Game was about 150 pages long. And uh, I, obviously, given the title of your wonderful podcast, uh, Jeff, I'm sure you have uh, some potential authors out there in your, uh, among your, uh, your listeners. So I'll, uh, it might be helpful for them to, uh, to know what my, my thinking about this. Sure. Um, there, there are authors, very successful authors, who don't outline. Um, I write a very 
a compressed book. In other words, as I say, it takes place over a short period of time. There are usually three subplots going on at once and uh, all those surprise endings. And that means there are a lot of clues that I have to put into the book uh, to make the the uh, surprise endings credible. And that just requires me, at least, to um, to outline. I, I know um, Lee Child, uh, who writes the wonderful Jack Reacher books, he doesn't outline. George R. R. Martin, who writes the Game of Thrones books, uh, he has said he doesn't outline. Um, I, I just don't work that way. And I think for most people, for most authors, it is helpful to know where you're going. Now, you don't need to be as obsessed an outliner as I am, uh, but you need to know where you're going ahead of time. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you a, a very good reason for that. Um, let's say you start writing. You're not outlining. You just start writing with a very exciting uh, set piece beginning. Your first chapter, big, exciting uh, action se sequence that you love writing. Out it comes in, you know, let's say an hour. Then you, you're on to chapter two. Wow, that's really good, too. Then three, that's a little slower. And then four, oh, well, I don't know what I'm going to do here, but you bang something out. Then chapter five, you come to a stop. Now, you've got 150 pages of prose written, and some of it very good prose, but you don't know where you're going to go. And you look at the um, that blank page, and you think, I, I, I don't have no answers. All I can see is cliches. And for the ending, all I can see is a, a, a an ending that comes from out of left field that doesn't make any sense. It's not organic to the story. Well, you know what you should do then? And you debate it for a while to give, give it some time. But basically what you should do is throw it out. What you have tried to do is write a book that should not be written. And we authors owe everything to our fans. We cannot give them a less than perfect product. And it hurts to throw out those pages, but you have to do it now. If, however, you were outlining and you get to that middle part, well, what are we going to do? You throw out 10 pages of outline and start over again. It's not as painful than, than writing the whole thing from beginning to end. So that's what I uh, that's why I'm an avid outliner and, and an avid advocate of outlining. Great. Well, I know that you uh, mentioned earlier that you do a lot of research for your novels. Was there anything surprising that you discovered about video games and how they're developed today when you were researching the Never Game? Uh, yes, basically that I wish I'd come up with a video game a few years ago myself <laughs> because <laughs> the industry is bigger than Hollywood. Uh, the revenues in the video gaming world are, are bigger than than in uh, than for all movies made in America. I shouldn't say just Hollywood, independent films, too. Uh, there are 200 million Americans who regularly play video games. Uh, it could be on their smartphone. It could be on their computer. It could be on a console like the Nintendo or Sega boxes that we remember, uh, Xboxes, uh, 360, and so forth. Uh, the uh, video game players can make millions of dollars simply professionally playing video games. Uh, and it's an international phenomenon. In China, there are, uh, on an average, I think, uh, you know, per year, 300 million players. Uh, Japan and Korea, huge uh, video uh, game players. It's, it's all over the uh, all over the world, uh, an untapped market. And the, the the games themselves are incredibly creative. The graphics are beautiful. The stories are amazing. Uh, the game companies use um, uh, script writers 
They use um, sound designers, uh, Foley artists. They use uh, graphic artists, of course, uh, special effects people. They basically are small movies that are created that you participate in. Uh, I, I had no idea the extent of the uh, of the video games. That's great. Well, are you planning to write another Culture Shawl novel? Uh, we're chatting through Skype right now, but if I were to minimize the screen, uh, <laughs> which I'm afraid to do because I, I don't quite know how computers work all that well, even though I've been involved in this business for a long time. I, I, I don't want to risk losing you, in other words, Jeff. That's what I'm saying. But if I were to minimize the screen, up would pop my next Culture Shaw book on uh, my uh, word processing program that I'm well into at the moment. Uh, it's uh, The outline is all done and I'm writing the prose right now. I don't want to give too much away, sure. except I will say that uh, your, uh, your listeners who do read The Never Game, they'll come to the last, basically the last page, and they'll see a potential springboard to a new job that Coulter Shaw has. Uh, and that's where we pick up in the the new novel, which will be out uh, from Putnam a year from uh, year from now. And we have a working title, but I'd just as soon not give anything away, largely because I'm a sick and twisted suspense writer, and I need to keep you all in suspense. Great. Well, you 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 talked earlier about your your process for outlining your novels and how that has helped you and the advice that you give. Uh, other authors. I'm wondering, do you have other advice for aspiring writers who may be listening? Oh, sure. <clears throat> I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the most important thing is to keep in mind um, the, the business model of your writing. Because writing, I write commercial fiction. I, I, this isn't literature, um, but I write commercial fiction that's entertaining fiction. I, I think it has some depth to it. Uh, I, I try to craft a good phrase in the book, but it's it's basically for entertainment, uh, which I, I think is absolutely wonderful. But you have to keep in mind that when you're writing your product for your consumer, writing your book for your audience, you keep them in mind. And the business model for that I call, when I teach my courses in writing, the mint-flavored toothpaste business model. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, um, I'll take just a minute here and we'll do a little hypothetical. Let's say I decided to give up writing and I was going to become a product designer for Procter & Gamble or a big uh, you know, consumer products company. And I go to my boss and I say, Fred, I've decided to give up writing. I, I want to create a new product that's going to put this company on the map. It's going to be liver flavored toothpaste because I think it's cool. It's just the greatest idea in the world. My girlfriend and I had pate last night. Pate is like liverwurst, but fancier and costs more. He said, yeah, yeah, Jeff, I know what, what pate is. What does this have to do with toothpaste? I say, it's unique. It's interesting. It'll get us press. And besides, I want to create the product. And so what does my boss do? He fires me on the spot. Why? Because people don't want liver-flavored toothpaste. They want mint-flavored toothpaste. Our job is not to write for ourselves. It's to write for your audience and you sit down with your blank screen or your pad of paper and before you come up with an idea, you think what is gonna make them happy? What is gonna make their palms sweat? What is gonna make them turn pages? Um, Mickey Spillane, the great Pulp Fiction writer from the 1950s and 60s said, people don't read books to get to the middle. We read books to get to the end. And meaning you don't pick up a 500 page book saying, I can't wait to get to the middle and put it down because it's boring. No, our job 
is to craft a book that grabs readers by the lapels on the opening page and race them through to the very final page. Uh, I don't want my books to be interesting. I want them to be compelling. I want people to show up late for work, to miss class, uh, to um, stay home and call in sick because they want to finish my um, finish my book. Um, I, I, I keep in mind, is this going to be good for readers or is it something I'm going to enjoy or I'm going to let slide? For instance, am I going to be lazy? Well, that's liver-flavored book writing. You can't do that. You've got to write the scenes and rewrite them over and over and over again. Uh, that creates a liver-flavored book. Um, some more advice for writers. Stay away from the violence. Think of Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, suspense. If you've seen Psycho, which I'm sure you have and many of your listeners have, um, the, the shower scene, we never saw Janet Lee stabbed. It was all done very artfully to create horror and suspense, but no violence and gore. That's some excellent advice to uh, keep in mind. My books are not violent. People think they are, but I cut away from the violence. I don't want to show something icky happening. Um, I don't have violence against children or animals. That's liver flavored. That's disturbing. I uh, don't digress. I, uh, I, if I put research in, I boil it down so that it's necessary to further the story. Well, those are just some some thoughts that I'm I'm happy to share. But uh, I, I should say, if any of your your listeners are interested, I do teach courses in writing where I go into this in in great detail. Just check my uh, my website if I can shamelessly self promote. Sure, and uh, and uh, come by and uh, you may pick up a few uh, a few tricks about this. Uh, Confounding, but absolutely marvelous business. Great. Well, what books, fiction or nonfiction, have you read recently that made an impression on you and that you would recommend or mention? I, um, oddly enough, I read, um, I, I do read crime fiction, of course. Uh, I read uh, a Jack Reacher novel, The Midnight Line by um, uh, Lee Child. Of course, he's a, a great writer. Um, I read... Um, the Last Widow by Karen Slaughter, and this is a bit of a cheat because as an author, I get to read books early. Uh, that's is not out yet, but Karen is a wonderful writer, and I strongly recommend that. I read uh, literary fiction, too. Um, the Shipping News by Annie Prue, uh, a wonderful, wonderful story. Annie is an astonishing stylist. Nobody puts words together like she does, in addition to telling a very... Uh, very good story, and I always return to some old uh, old favorites of mine. Um, I not too long ago I reread, thanks largely to my nieces, uh, The Hobbit. I read that aloud to them. I love Tolkien. I uh, I don't want to incur the wrath of your fans. I <laughs> have nothing against Harry Potter. I just have not had the opportunity to to read the the series. I'm sure I will it at some point, but I, I really love uh, Tolkien. And I am I just heard as an aside that there is a, um, a film about Tolkien's life coming out, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Sure. Um, and I, I look forward to uh, seeing that. Um, he was in uh, Adon, it, it was either Oxford or Cambridge. I'm, my history is failing me at the moment. So those were just a couple of the books. But, you know, I have to say, Jeff, that I, I'm working on the new Coulter Shaw at the moment, my next Lincoln Rhyme book, which will be out the year after that. Uh, two short stories due within a couple of months and a, um, a short story that's due at the end of the year. So um, 
I unfortunately don't get a, a chance to read as much as I'd like. If you ever read about an author in North Carolina who's killed when his bedside table collapses and he's crushed to death under the books sitting on it, that'll be me. <laughs> Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with best-selling writer Jeffrey Deaver. Deaver's new novel, The Never Game, is in stores this week, so go grab a copy or download the ebook. Jeff, thanks for doing this interview. A real pleasure talking to you, Jeff. You take care now. Great. Thank you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.